The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 11th of September. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. In a month from now, we will be analysing how a 6.4 billion euro budget package will act to improve people's lives in this country. The budget will be announced on the 10th of October. Politicians return to the Dáil on Wednesday week and members of the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party meet today in Tipperary ahead of the new political season. The budget will be in focus and just how 5.25 billion will be used on additional core spending and 1.15 billion on tax cuts will take centre stage. There is now also the question of what to do with an additional 5 billion euro reported to be earmarked for one-off measures making an overall budget package of 11.4 billion euro. While the budget will be the priority inside the Thinkin meeting at Horse and Jockey outside, farmers will be protesting to let Fianna Fáil know how unhappy they are with the Minister for Agriculture, Fianna Fáil TD, Charlie McConnell. And perhaps we'll talk about that in a moment. We're joined by Thomas Byrne, Fianna Fáil TD for Meath East, who is also Minister for Sport and Physical Education from Tipperary. And a very good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I gather at this stage everyone has managed to recharge their batteries and it's all eyes on what happens next week and indeed in the coming weeks at this stage. Well look, it's a, it's a good political tradition that after the summer, and by the way most TDs will, will take a couple of weeks holidays but generally speaking they're, they're quite busy working at either constituency or, or ministerial office during the summer, um, but it is a good time to take stock where we are as a party uh, obviously with the budget coming up in terms of what our policy priorities should be uh, to reflect on the housing situation, our priorities, the cost of living, um, education, public transport and indeed we'll be talking about the future of media as well today including local radio, uh, that'll be tomorrow actually. Um, so I think it's just a good opportunity to do that and that obviously comes to mind as well with the local and European elections uh, in front of us as well. Okay, but the budget will take centre stage today? Yeah, we'll be discussing the budget with uh, Minister McGrath and indeed the Taunashta uh, when the thinking starts there just at lunchtime. Uh, and that will obviously be, you know, a good discussion of where we want to be, what Fianna Fáil's priority should be, what the priorities of the members are. And this is how we get our, you know, uh, get our views known as parliamentarians and also as well to reflect the views of people who've been contacting us. We've we've already had a lot of people on to us as local TDs with, with different issues um, that they would like to see addressed in the budget. And I think it's a good chance to just gather thoughts and see how we can best address those issues that have been brought to us. Are you going into the meeting yourself with a, a list of priority issues? Well, I'll do that from a, from a departmental point of view separately. But yeah, I mean, I have, I have priority issues. I mean, our first priority, of course, is housing. I mean, that's the overall priority that the government has, is to deal with the housing situation, to make sure that we can continue to increase housing supply, continue to make housing affordable uh, and all of that. Um, we want to make sure the health service, I mean, one of my local priorities is, is in terms of disability services, in terms of making sure that we can ramp up um, access to facilities in County Mead. It's, really, it's been a problem. Uh, it is a problem, a very serious problem, and it's one that I know the Minister Robert starting to address, but it definitely needs more money, and that's something that I certainly would be pushing for. And I think public transport as well is something that we have actually seen improvements in in County Mead, uh, but we probably just need to see more improvements in as well, including the Navan rail line, but also lots of 
bus routes as well. So, so they're very, very important issues for me. Okay, the Tonisha has said already that there will be an increase this year for pensioners, and we're seeing reports that some pensioners could be in receipt of over three hundred euro, well, in excess of three hundred euro. In fact, if you take the fuel allowance into account after the budget. Well, look, I mean, I, I, I won't start predicting what's going to be in the budget. He's probably in a better position to know that. But what I would say, just on the fuel allowance, we did expand that pretty significantly last year. And I think that's been very welcome. And just anybody that hasn't checked whether they're entitled to the fuel allowance, maybe because they have a small private pension on top of their state pension, it's probably worth checking that because th- that was a big change. It used to exclude a lot of people. Now we've brought, um, I think, about 90,000 more people into that. So it's always worth checking that, particularly as we come into the winter. So I, I don't begrudge pensioners anything. Um, I think uh, they, like every other sector of society, have seen huge cost increases uh, and they need income increases to, to, to be able to cope with that, particularly in relation mm. to fuel uh, and indeed the cost of food as well. Uh, how much weight will be given in the budget, do you think, uh, to the proposal from four Fine Gael ministers uh, to put a €1,000 back through tax cuts into the pockets of high earners? Well, there's a certain amount of money available for tax. So as, as you just said, it's just over a billion. Um, so there's a lot of demands as to what we do. I mean, my priority is that we just do it as fairly as possible. Um, we've expressed interest in increasing the renter's tax credit. We'd like to do that. There are people who want to reduce the, the USC. Uh, we know what those Finnegan TDs look for. But at the end of the day, the money that will be going for tax cuts is the same no matter what we do. So we've got to, I suppose, have discussions among ourselves today um, and then with the other parties then to negotiate the best possible outcome. And our priority is to make sure it's as fair as possible. And uh, we have seen the budgets that this government has been in charge of uh, fairer uh, in other words, that the, those at the lower end actually gain more than those at the higher end. And we've got to protect that and make sure that that's the case uh, with every measure that we put into place. Nice. Uh, will there be changes to the USC? Uh, there's talk of uh, that uh, secondary rate going from 4.5% to 4%. Well, again, I'm not going to start predicting individual measures, but it's certainly something I'd like to see. But again, the same point applies. We have a certain amount for tax so we have to decide what we do within that amount and how we do it as far as possible. And it's likely that we can't do everything. Um, but I certainly am interested in seeing middle-income earners uh, get some relief because they certainly badly need it. Mm. Will this be a- an opportunity to buy votes? I don't think votes can be bought. I think the Irish people are too intelligent for that. Uh, but what the Irish people want is a fair budget, uh, a budget that protects public services, a budget that ensures that we're building more houses yeah. uh, and that, you know, deals with the cost of living. And, and last year's budget did that. Um, there was a lot of protection I and mean, the government can never protect everything, every problem from people's lives. Um, but there was a lot of protection from the cost of living increases in terms of the money that was given uh, during the course of the winter yeah. uh, to people in terms of fuel allowances and electricity subventions and all of that and extra social welfare. And that did help and did work. Um, and that's what we're trying to do. It's not a question of buying votes. It's a question of ensuring that with the tax money that's coming into the country, which is at record levels, but yes, we have to be kind of careful and not take it for granted. Yeah. Uh, how do we how do we spend that as fairly as possible while protecting the economy? But surely, looking at the next election, which politicians always do, Fianna Fáil will be looking to distance itself from Fine Gael and Fine Gael policies and align itself with Sinn Féin and Sinn Féin policies in the hope well, sorry, of being a to, member of the next government. Just to cut you out there now, I won't be aligning myself with Sinn Féin policies. So just full stop. Well, um, that's the only prospect of Fianna Fáil being in the next government, is it not? 
nobody can predict these things. I mean, Sinn Féin had a disaster of a local elections in 2019 when they lost loads of councillors and then they came back from the dead for the 2020 election. And the one thing that we can be certain of mm. is that you can't, you can't be certain. That's the one thing. Um, so, so let's not take anything for granted. Fianna Fáil, we've gone into this election as an independent party with a proud track record uh, in ministries which yeah. are dealing with public services. Mm. Uh, and we will do that. And then we'll see after the election who we're going to power with. Uh, is there a possibility of a reshuffle before the next election? Because, as you say, you hold some very important ministries, housing, disaster, health. Uh, God knows uh, how much uh, will be needed uh, because uh, Stephen Donnelly doesn't seem to be able to handle the health budget. Uh, and agriculture. You have farmers standing outside this morning giving out yards about Charlie McConnell. They are very, very unhappy with how the minister has performed. Indeed, Fine Gael parliamentarians seem to be lining up to criticise Charlie McConnell's performance as well. I, I think this is the particular issue of the nit- nitrates directive at the moment um, that is obviously causing a bit of concern among farmers. But I have to say, overall, I think Charlie McConnell has an excellent record among farmers. No, it's uh, not what farmers I, say. They say it's the latest suckler scheme, issues in the sheep sector, the destruction of uh, tillage through cap, the inability to draw down BAR funding and the forestry debacle as well as the nitrates directive. Well, all I can say is that two months ago I had Charlie McConnell at a public meeting of farmers in a local farm here, actually, and we, I don't know, we had a couple of hundred farmers at that meeting. And yes, there's, there's a lot of issues, of course, and farmers are very active members of society. Like they take part in debates, they raise mm. their issues uh, all the time. Um, but there was a huge respect for Charlie McConnell, I, I have to say that night. People ne- didn't necessarily agree with everything he said, um, but I think he's somebody, I have to say, who had a detailed knowledge uh, of agriculture, of farmers, and I think impressed an awful lot of people with that. And mm. so much, so much in terms of our agriculture policy is dealt with at European level. And I have to say, I can't think of anyone better than Charlie at the moment well, who uh, actually do that job. You're at, at odds level. with the farmers. Uh, the farmers say he appears to be out of control. Every approach uh, he's taken is based on the ideology of reducing production. Uh, and the government keeps talking about schemes to support farmers, but most of it goes on compliance costs with little or no money fund ending up with farm families. That's why they're standing outside your thinking today. That's why they're so angry. That's why they're not impressed with Charlie McConnell. That's why Fine Gael isn't particularly impressed with Charlie McConnell, for that matter. Look, there's no one trying to restrict production. I mean, we need food. We need more food um, because of our growing population, the world's growing population, and Ireland's going to be part of that. So, so, so there's no one trying to stop production. I mean, that's simply a myth. Like, I mean, and people who say that are not simply dealing with reality. The IFA. Um, but... There, well, it's not correct that there's anyone trying to stop production. There are there are environmental issues, there's no doubt, and they are causing causing some difficulty. Yeah. But they're a fact as well, and we have to deal with them. I mean, people are you know campaigning in this area for clean rivers. Uh, we've got to make sure that every aspect of that uh, is is protected, and that yeah. includes that's not and that's not trying to blame farmers or whatever. I mean, that includes all of us, and there's Irish Water involved there, and commercial industrial companies, all of that. We've got to make sure we all play our part. But there's absolutely nobody trying to stop production. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite, trying to do so uh, in the best possible way. You don't think there's any question about Charlie McConnell's future or that of Stephen Donnelly or that of Darrell O'Brien? No. Okay. Uh, what about um, Helen McEntee, Ogrefina Fall over the uh, summer months, called for the minister to go and to be replaced with a Fianna Fáil minister for justice? Well, unfortunately, I mean, look, that's not going to happen. I mean, the, 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 there's a coalition agreement between the various parties and Fine Gael have the Justice Ministry. Uh, and Minister McEntee is there and clearly she's been under some pressure over the last few weeks. 
uh, look, I support the work that she's doing. Um, I think there have been extra resources uh, given, uh, particularly in Dublin, where there's some some high profile, uh, high profile, uh, very very serious incidents. I think that's very very necessary. I have to say, I'd like to see some of that though, some of that resource come to the commuter belt as well, uh, to our own area too, because I think I think we definitely need it. But look, Minister McIntyre is my full support. Uh, and I think that it's uh, you know it's, it's a difficult job, which, which I have to say I think she's performing very well in. And every justice minister is going to have moments uh, when there are difficulties, and that's just that's just the job that she's in, and she's she's well able for that. Okay, when do you believe the next election will be? I would say March 25, which is the the last date. I, I don't see why we would go earlier than that. But again, that's a matter for the leaders and particularly the sea shock. But we'll, we'll wait and see. But at the moment, we have a job to do, which is which is the the budget coming up mm. and that, that's very important. We've local and European elections after that and there's a natural cycle there and that's democracy. There's going to be an election and I, I suspect it'll be March 25. Okay, very good. We'll leave it there. Thank you indeed as always for joining us today from Tipperary Fianna Fáil, TD for Meath East Thomas Byrne who is uh, the Minister for Sport and Physical Education. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, the plan was uh, that we'd vote in November to remove or amend uh, part of uh, the Constitution that says uh, the state recognises that by her life within the home, woman gives to the state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved. The state shall therefore endeavour to ensure that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labour to the neglect of their duties in the home. Seems fairly straightforward, uh, but uh, removing uh, that clause from uh, the Constitution is not at all straightforward. In fact, it looks as though there may now be two referendums instead of uh, just one. Let's speak to Ivana Backage, who's the Labour Party leader and also chairperson of the Special Oireachtas Committee on Gender Equality and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Ivana Backage. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. You believe uh, the government should proceed and look at uh, this clause in the Constitution, whether it's to be removed or to be changed. Good morning, Michael, and thank you for inviting me on the show this morning. And yes, indeed, I think the government needs to move swiftly on this. There's been a great deal of groundwork done. As you've said, I chair the Oireachta Special Committee on Gender Equality, and we provided government with a report last December in which we set out a specific form of wording that we suggested should be used to replace the current text. And you've read out, I think, very, Mm. uh, very, you know, very clearly the text currently in Article 41 of the Constitution, which is really so objectionable. It's very dated. It refers to a a very outdated and obsolete gender stereotype. In other words, saying that women have a life within the home, that mothers have duties in the home. And of course, there's no reference there to fathers, Mm. which itself is unfair and doesn't recognise the reality of men's contributions. Well, offensive, I would say, yeah. Well, you know, I, th- I think it's, it's certainly obsolete, it's certainly outdated, and it's no place in a modern constitution. And, you know, that's not my view, it's not yeah. just the view of one group. It, for years, indeed decades, there have been calls for the removal and replacement of this text. Mm. The Citizens' Assembly on Gender Equality made a very clear call for the replacement of the text with a, a, a more um, modern and mm. contemporary form of wording, re- valuing care in a gender-neutral way, in other words, care about both women and men provided in and outside the home. So we came up in our committee to cut to the chase with a form yeah. of words that had cross-party unanimous support. We called on government to adopt that. 
the Taoiseach assured me earlier this year that he would put forward the wording to the people in a referendum this November, but the timeline has slipped. He said he would have a response on our wording, a government wording, in other words, a clear government proposal by Mm -hmm. summer. That didn't happen. Now there's a concern, I think, that the time is slipping on and that there won't be time to hold this referendum. Your listeners may say, well, well, what does it matter? But actually, you know, it's it, our constitution is our fundamental law. The courts refer to the constitution in all sorts of cases. And it's not just about the st- gender stereotypes and the view of women and mothers. The problem with Article 41 goes deeper because there is also within it a clause that refers to the family as being based exclusively on marriage. Mm. And that's very, very out okay. of date. That's the more complicated so part of the conversation yeah. and that is why there may be yeah. the need for a, a second referendum. I think what we've been talking about with yeah. the place of a, a woman in the home uh, is a fairly straightforward com- uh, conversation. The, it's only complicated to the degree that the question is, do you remove or replace that? And I think the consensus is to replace it. But what it, so, yeah. what is a, a family? And the family states that it, it is uh, a, a group of people uh, where marriage is involved uh, as you say. And that is where it gets very, very complicated. And this is going to be a heated debate in terms of defining what the family is in our constitution. Well, with respect, Michael, I don't think it is so complex. And ironically, e- even the government are not suggesting that issue is complex. Again, there's a clear view across the political spectrum, I think across the country generally, I think your listeners will share the view, that it's no longer appropriate to see family as being exclusively family-based in marriage and that family can mean much more diverse things. We have a much more inclusive idea of family now. And actually, the Constitution could be changed in a very simple way, as we proposed, simply to take out the words in which the family is, uh, you know, to take out the reference to marriage as the base for the family and leave it then to the courts to determine in individual cases whether, you know, a household constitutes a family, a single parent household, a household headed by a widowed or separated individual, you know, to a couple living together. What what constitutes a family, I think, is far more appropriately dealt with case by case. So, you know, we've made a very clear proposal on that. I don't think it's so complex that it warranted all of this length of time since our very careful and very considered recommendations made to government. And I'm very disappointed actually that we're seeing such delay because as you know, as the National Women's Council and other groups have pointed out, there are families today that are suffering as a result of the lack of an inclusive definition. And I'm thinking in particular, your listeners may know of the Johnny O'Mara case, a very tragic case involving a man whose partner, whose lifelong partner died tragically and who left him with three small children. But because they had never married, he was denied the widower's support mm. that would have been ava- he would have been able to avail of had he been married to, to Michelle Beatty, his partner. And the Johnny O'Mara case is currently before the courts. The courts have pointed out there is a gap here in protection for cohabiting couples and you know it's time we resolve this. So I don't Mm. think it's so complex. I do believe it's time for government to move on this. Can you define what a family is then for us? Well, as I said, we don't. We believe that family should be protected and recognised in the Constitution. Mm. We don't think it's appropriate to place a specific definition of family in the Constitution. And if I may say, again, you know, the Constitution is the fundamental law of the land. However, the, the provisions typically are, are, are broad enough that it's left then to the Oireachtas, the, legis- you know, the, the legislators, and indeed the courts to set out the specific detail of, for example, what is a family in a particular case, or, for example, of what legislation is required to give effect to the mm. rules on, on you know, how people vote in elections. That's the 
sort of thing the Constitution does. So it tells us in broad brush, for example, how many TDs per head of population, but it leaves to the legislature how to work that out in individual elections. And in the mm. same way in the family article, you know, the very specific definition that's there is no longer appropriate. We have much more a broad idea now in Ireland of what families should look like. And let's leave that then But that's vague, is it not? And does that not call into question uh, whether the man you just spoke about um, would realise justice um, or or not? Uh, If we do not define what the family is, how can the rights that go with being a member of a family be applied? Well, again, as I say, that would be the usual way in which constitutional provisions are operated, that the principle is set out uh, in a broad sense, and then the legislators and indeed the courts in individual cases determine those. The difficulty we have now is that the constitution is too specific, in fact. It specifies that the family is that is limited to that based on marriage. Uh, now, happily, we've changed the definition of marriage and broadened that so it may be entered, as we know, by couples of, who are heterosexual or indeed homosexual but we have never changed the definition of family to broaden that and to enable then the Oireachtas and the courts to take a broader view. And that's really what mm. we're talking about here. Okay, so, it, as I say, it would be in keeping with, the constitu- with, you know, with, with general constitutional provisions to, in fact, take out that very restrictive view of family and replace it with a broader one. Mm. Well... Times change, uh, and uh, as they do, definitions can change, and that certainly is uh, true of same-sex marriage. Uh, what about people who believe uh, they're a member of a polygamous family, uh, where there's several partners? Well, again, you see, the, the problem currently is that the, the constitutional provision restricts application of of, uh, of constitutional protection to families other than family based in marriage. And as I say, that's a very narrow interpretation. Mm. What we want to see is a more inclusive provision that would thereby enable the Oireachtas in the first place and then also the courts to determine in an individual case what is a family. So, for example, Johnny O'Mara and Michelle Beatty and they see three children. I think everyone in Ireland would say mm. they are entitled to be regarded as a family in our law. And the constitution currently does not recognise that family unit, that household. And there are plenty of other instances where we've seen, and indeed last week I was present at a press conference where we heard from Family Carers Ireland, from the One mm. Family Organisation, from TROR, which represents uh, other forms of family and single parent families. We heard from them and we heard from very, very, indivi- you know, very particular individual experience mm. just how limiting that definition of family is. Okay. So we want to see the restriction lifted and we want to see it then left to the courts and the Oireachtas. And that's for another day then, what households Will, 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 if you like, um, be, re- be regarded mm. as coming within the definition. Uh, but uh, we wanted to just lift the restriction. As a barrister, do you have thoughts on um, the reference to morals, a uh, kind of pious attitude that is taken in the Constitution? I think it could be argued because it's talking about the family as a moral institution possessing inalienable and imprescriptible rights. Yes, I mean, you're referring there to Article 41.1, which mm. says the state recognises the family and so on as a moral institution. In fact, our review group, our, our committee, I should say, and indeed the Citizens' Assembly, made no recommendation for change to that provision. What we wanted to do, I suppose, was do the minimal change necessary. I mean, you know, as you say, I'm a constitutional lawyer. I've argued mm. cases before the court, you, you know, referring to and relying upon constitutional interpretation and articles. And, you know, while politically I might, I, you know, I might be of a view that the 
more radical reform of the constitution is needed. You know, nonetheless, when we're looking at specific issues and specific application to individual families and people, what we wanted to do was do a minute was, was recommend to government a more minimal change. So we didn't recommend any change to that mm. article. Uh, you know, it, it, I think there have you know it, it's worth noting that there have been more wide scale recommendations for reform of the constitution more broadly. But our remit as a, as a committee was to look just at the recommendations of the Citizens Assembly on gender equality and really give the government a blueprint as to how to achieve those. And that's what we were doing. So we didn't in any way seek to alter the more general recognition of the family in Article 41.1. So that would remain intact. So uh, instead of the state pledging uh, to guard with special care the institution of marriage, uh, should it be uh, to guard with special care intimate relationships? Well, the wording we propose to government would be to, to, again, to keep as much of the constitutional text as we could, um, so that, again, to make a sort of minimal change. This is not a radical proposition. What we said was that the the provision in Article 41.3, in fact, should be changed to say the state pledges itself to guard with special care the family, including but not limited to the marital family. And we believe that that recognises, you know, and, and, uh, and respects the value that many people do indeed place on marriage, the fact that it is an institute, a civil and, and indeed yeah. for many a religious institution, and yet it also gives us, gives us as legislators, gives the courts the uh, the the enablement, if you like, or the facility to to recognise a much broader definition of family than the family based in marriage. So we preserved a recognition of marriage, but we but we also enabled the courts and legislature to take a broader view of family, and we think that's a very sensible, a pragmatic, and if I may say. A relatively conservative approach to take to redefining uh, uh, family within okay. the constitution. Uh, and just to conclude, if I, I can, where does gender come into all of this? Uh, because uh, I'm of the impression, at least, that when we get to discussing this referendum or the two referendums, if that's what's necessary, we're going to end up talking about transgenders uh, and transphobia. I, I'm not sure why that is the case. Are you? I don't. I don't think we will. I think it depends. Obviously, this is a matter for government. We, what we've been asking and calling upon government to do is to adopt the citizens' assembly recommendations, and they made recommendations for three, three things to change in the constitution. And you and I have just been talking mm. about the two that related to that relate to Article Forty One. That is, first, to remove the sexist language that refers to women and mothers and replace it that neutral def- valuing of care. It's hugely important. That's the first one. The second is to, again, same article but a different clause in it. The second is to create the more inclusive definition of family. So those two amendments could be done as part of one vote, one change to Article 41, which inco- incorporates a number of different textual changes. Uh, the government hasn't yet told us whether they're going to do that by way of one or two referendums. There was a third recommendation of the Citizens' Assembly that we also looked at, and that relates to the equality guarantee in a different article of the Constitution, Article 40, subsection 1. And the, the Citizens' Assembly called on the government to uh, to refer specifically in that article to uh, gender equality. And so we came up with, because currently, again, your listeners may not be aware, currently it's a general equality guarantee. It doesn't refer to uh, gender or indeed to, uh, to uh, uh, in, in current form. It says all citizens shall, as human persons, be held equal before the law. So in order to incorporate the Citizens' Assembly recommendation, we, again, in our committee, 
made a recommendation that it, the, the phrase should instead say as human persons without distinction of the sex be held equal before the law. So again, a minimal change. We don't know if government will accept that. I suppose um, perhaps less pressing a change in our view than the changes to Article 41, which we've been talking about so much. So it may well be government won't decide to proceed with the equality guarantee change. We very much hope they will. And we believe we've come up with a watertight form of words that will, uh, that, we, that is in keeping with the current text of the Constitution, but, but also incorporates the Citizens' Assembly wish. Okay. You know, we're very conscious. This was an assembly, and indeed, as with our committee, it was looking specifically at gender equality, at the ways in which women and uh, women are, are, are mm. still structurally disadvantaged in Irish society. And we were asked to come up with a blueprint for change to achieve a more genuinely equal society. And the constitutional changes we recommended form part of a whole package of other measures. There were 45 recommendations mm. to the Citizens' Assembly on a range of issues, including okay. gender based violence, including mm. women in politics, including mm-hmm. uh, leadership in public life and in education. So, okay. you know, it's a package of measures, Michael. We're very hopeful we'll see government move swiftly on the referendum. But, you know, really, there's been a lot of foot dragging, particularly on Article 41, where the need for change has been has been mm. really made clear over many decades now. Even yeah. when the Constitution mm. was adopted in 1937, yeah. mm. women's groups objected to I'm Article sure. 41. So I think that's the urgent <laughs> I'm sure. All right. We have to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us though this morning. That's Ivana Bakic, who's the leader of uh, the Labour Party and uh, the chairperson of the Special Rockless Committee on Gender Equality. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. Well, Fianna Fáil uh, will meet in Tipperary. Strong message coming outside of uh, that thinking from farmers indeed. There's many strong messages being sent uh, to parliamentarians, not just members of uh, Fianna Fáil, but all of uh, the government parties. Uh, the SIP2 trade union is warning government that if it doesn't do something to offset the cost of living, it can expect more disputes because its members are, are finding it difficult to, to make ends meet. Let's hear more. Adrian Kane, SIP2 Divisional Organiser is on the line. Good morning to you Adrian and thanks indeed for joining us on the programme this morning and the government has many ways at its disposal of putting money back in your members' pockets. Uh, I suppose we've heard a couple of ideas the thousand euro from uh, the Fine Gael junior ministers uh, and then talk over the weekend of a cut to the rate of USC. What are your thoughts on those proposals or do you have other proposals yourself? Yeah, well, good morning, Michael. Um, the, the first thing that I would say in terms of where we find ourselves with inflation, inflation is now running at 6.3%, uh, and we've had 22 months running in which inflation has come in at over 5%. We were told at the beginning of this crisis that you, you were, most economists were in a space where you were in, in going to have a peak in inflation and then that very quickly get back down to 2 to 3%. That has not happened. And we are in a sustained period of moderate inflation. And what we're saying is two things. One, we predicated most of our pay deals over the last two or three years on that economic prediction of high inflation back down to 2 to 3%. That's clearly not the case. Most of our wage deals over the last 18 months have been run at around 3.5% per annum. And we're going to have to revisit them. And we have built in, in a lot of cases, we have review clauses, but we're going to have to go back there. Because what's driving inflation, it's not labour costs. And even our own central bank reported that domestic corporate business has recorded profits of 30, of an increase in profits of 30% over the last two years. So as a trade union, the, the, the one thing that we have 
um, as the the go-to position is obviously to try and increase wages at the point of production, and we're going to do that. Mm. But the government needs to do a lot more. And I think that the key thing that I would say um, is that we think you need to have a more concrete uh, and forceful position by the government of trying to control prices, not merely subsidising them. So where is that energy credit, electricity credit of €200 Euro would be welcome. I think if you were to look at, say, electricity prices across the, co- across the continent, our electricity prices have increased by 80% in the last two years. In France, that's less than 20%. In Malta, they haven't increased at all. And in Spain, they've actually decreased. And the reason why those countries have been much more successful in that space is that in the case of France, they renationalized their electricity company. In Malta, they froze the prices. And in Spain, they did similarly. And it's that sort of state intervention of trying to control rather than subsidize, which essentially ends up in the coffers of the, uh, of, of the companies mm. themselves. We think that's a much more um, forceful and effective way. The same could be done with rent controls. And also, I think, and I would welcome the development um, this morning with regard to GPs, but if you were to look at all public services and making them cheaper to people, um, I think that would also have a very positive effect. Okay, so if your taxes went to pay for those services, uh, perhaps you don't need a reduction in taxes because uh, you're getting uh, it in a a different way. Uh, You're getting money back in your pocket because you're not spending it on those services. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at, and again, some some positives that have happened, the the reduction in um, bus fares by 35%, childcare by 21%, um, the, the GP problem, that, that, that's, if you were to extend that to everybody, one issue that we have been um, campaigning on, and you, you would be familiar with it in, in terms of what, what happened uh, in Tara Mines, of trying to increase un, un, unemployment benefit, that it's actually linked to your wage. So I think those kind of things that the state has within its co- control are, are very positive. When you when you get into tax reduction, everybody wants wants that, you know. Mm. But then you, you have to look and say, well, what does that actually mean with regard to the quality of public services? But USC is not a progressive tax, and uh, I, we, we'll have to wait and see what what comes um, out. Uh, in the budget in relation to that. Mm. Uh, if uh, the budget doesn't make it cheaper to live in this country, regardless of, of how uh, you need less money, uh, you're predicting uh, the, a winter of discontent, are you? Well, we have a strike starting on Wednesday in GMC, which is the main contractor for Gas Networks Ireland, and it's overpay because workers haven't got an increase there since 2019. And y- y- you will have that agitation building over the next number of months if you don't see a very aggressive government policy with regard to tackling the cost cost of living. Uh, and workers will be pushing for more pay increases. And that's what we're doing as it stands. OK. Adrian, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, as always, for joining us on uh, the programme today. That's Adrian Kane, SIP2 Divisional Organiser. Now, if you'd like to make comment on the programme today, 0419832000, our telephone number, text or WhatsApp, 0861800658, and you can email michael at lmfm.ie. 
Now, today sees uh, the beginning of End Child Poverty Week. Tanya Ward, Chief Executive of uh, the Children's Rights Alliance, uh, joins us to tell us more. And a very good morning to you, Tanya. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, before you tell us uh, about what's ahead this week and the different themes that will be raised uh, on each of uh, the days this week, maybe you tell us what poverty is or how poverty is defined when we talk about child poverty. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's a good question. I uh, suppose the key thing I think most people will understand it is that it's really not having enough income to pay for the basic essentials every day. But in the terms of how we understand poverty or count how many children and families might be in poverty, um, the CSO does a household survey uh, every year and it, it, we usually get the results about 18 months later. And, and they ask a number of questions and these questions are just very basic questions about, you know, uh, can you buy a winter coat um, when needed? Can you replace a piece of furniture um, if, if, if it breaks in the house? Can you put fish or uh, chicken on the table every other day? Uh, or can you go on a family outing? And through answering those questions and looking at how much uh, money people have, they're able to discern, you know, how many people are living in deep poverty, how many people are living in or are at risk of poverty. Right. Uh, I think uh, there's close to 190,000 children under the age of 18 uh, who can't afford those things or the family can't afford them for them. Yeah, they're at, they're at risk of poverty. I mean, mm. you're looking at the population of Wexford and Kilkenny combined, and, you know, that that's a huge number. And I suppose for us, we, you know, we look behind those figures and, and what does it mean, what does it look like? When we talk to children who live through poverty, um, you know, they're very aware of it. That's the, that's the thing, you know, and they will see that the stress that their parents are under trying to put food on the table. You know, they'll be parents will be trying to hold, hold down a low paid job often, that's what they're dealing with or their income is being hemorrhaged by high rents and they often learn not to ask their parents when they need something, so if they need a new pair of shoes for school or a school book um, they generally don't tell their parents and one of the big things they often do is they exclude themselves from hanging out with their friends because you know, their friends might be going off to the cinema and they can't afford it, they'll pretend they just have something else on but they, they, they won't go along mm. or if there's a birthday party and they can't afford the presents um, they won't go along mm. It's a dreadful way to live I uh, don't think anybody could be enviable at all in any way of anyone who uh, is in poverty uh, and it's time to end child poverty that's uh, the theme of uh, this week of course it's not the first end child poverty week you'll be hoping that it's the last well, I'd love to say that, mm, <laughs> but I the know. truth is it probably yeah. take about mm. 10 years, really, to of government action to mm. really change those kind of figures and statistics. And the truth is, it's not inevitable. Actually, it's in the gust of the government because the reason why people are living in poverty or caught up in poverty or drowning in poverty is because of decisions that successive governments have made and they haven't made the right decisions. So we're, so we've organised the End Child Poverty Week in the run-up to the budget to really remind government and remind all the ministers about, look, there's so many key things you can do this year that will make an enormous difference to children and families. Mm-hmm. So even if you think last year, one of the things the government did was uh, they uh, paid for uh, 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 free primary school books. Now, that's a norm 
all across Europe, children don't pay for their school books. The school books are issued through the school. Um, but that was introduced for the first year this year. And we saw a real impact on that. Um, St. Vincent de Paul found for the first time they actually had a fall in the number of families coming to them looking for help with education costs. And we also know, even just anecdotally from parents, you know, who would be, like, let's say, on better incomes, that actually it was a huge help to them uh, coming up to deal with the, with the school costs. Because the other thing we know from all the surveys is when parents, you know, they, they hit September, it's a very difficult time. Yeah. Um, they'll pay the school subscription fees and they'll try and get the shoes that they need or the school bag or any of the school costs. But what they don't do and what parents on higher incomes do is they don't pay for after school activities. So their kids miss out on, uh, they might be interested in sports or the violin or learning an instrument or guitar. Those kids miss out on all of that. So we know that by the government stepping in, making these important investments, that children are going to have a much better experience. And that's just one investment that you're calling for today on the first day of End Child Poverty Week. Uh, the team, if you like, is investing in education. That's right. I suppose uh, that, you know, the government has done primary school books. Now we're asking them to focus on uh, school books at second level. And I have to say, I just had... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A child's enter... Um, first year and I, I got I got a shock I knew it was coming <laughs> I got a shock <laughs> when I saw the cost coming through for the for first year and the iPad and all the different things that were needed so we're asking government to invest 70 million in free school books at, at second level we think that will make an enormous difference particularly because look at in your teenage years um, it's cost much more to raise a child or a young person in, in the teenage years particularly just because they grow up clothes so much they eat more um, and they have lots of other costs that, that hit them. But we're also calling, um, when it comes to education, that we know the government haven't invested on some key services that make a huge difference to children. And that's the education welfare service. So, you know, we have 120 education welfare officers in Ireland at the moment. And that's the service over 4,000 schools. And what they do is they step in if there's a child that has missed too much school or who's vulnerable to early school leaving or who can't find a school place and we know from the services working directly with these young people they're not getting enough support sometimes in some parts of the country from the education welfare service so really to you know to even equal what we have in northern ireland for the same service uh, TUSLA needs another 90 education welfare officers so we're asking government you know Education is critical if you're going to break the cycle of poverty. These are the kinds of investments that are going to change children's lives. Mm. And you can only educate children if they turn up at school. Children will be absent for good reasons sometimes and not at other times. And you want an investment in how that's overseen, I think. 
Um, that's right. I mean, w- one of the things that we know is that um, half of children in poverty are actually in uh, non-desh schools. So we have a desh program. If you live in an area high disadvantage, the government actually invests more money into those schools. But what we know from all the work that's been done is half of those children aren't in those schools. And actually, they're often in rural Ireland and different parts of the country. So we, we, we know from talking to principals and teachers that having a homeschool liaison officer, having a teacher that, you know, works with those children and families that would be struggling. So, you know, if a child's not showing up to school, maybe they go and visit the family, try and work out what's going on. Sometimes they provide courses to the family. Sometimes they help the family find somewhere to live. I mean, they do lots of different things, but we know that that's a game changer often in a school when they have someone like that that's able to step in because principals would tell us about, you know, they get through the school day and then they try on top of the school day trying to step in and help uh, children and young people that might be very vulnerable or that they're very worried about. And it's, it's probably just too much for them to do. Mm. Okay, uh, just uh, before you go, because we'll be hearing uh, about education all day today and uh, every day with uh, it will bring um, another theme in terms of how to end child poverty. But can I ask you about the proposal from the ESRI last week, which was to have a, a second tier of child benefit that would be means tested, wouldn't interfere with the universal payment that's there, but it would be a second tier for people in, in most need of it. Uh, they you said that that would bring 40,000 children out of child poverty. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was very compelling because listing 40,000 children out of risk of poverty group is very significant. So that 190,000 children we just talked about, that'll be down to 150,000 children. And what they were talking about was replacing two existing payments, the work and family family payments that's going to families who are working part time or on low pay jobs and then families who are in receipt of welfare payments. So we certainly think on the basis of what the data they provided, the government should definitely explore whether this is the right way to reform our benefit system. Uh, If it can result in these kind of outcomes, it's absolutely worth progressing. Okay. We leave it there for the moment. Many thanks, as always, for joining us here today at the outset of End Child Poverty Week. That's Tanya Ward, Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance. Now, let me bring you some of the comments that have been coming to us uh, this morning. We had Pat McDade in Drogheda in touch with us. Thanks, Pat. Thanks, Pat, again. <laughs> the Pat, I think, has uh, picked me up on how to pronounce uh, the leader of the Labour Party surname in the past uh, because I have for a long time been calling Ivana uh, Bacic. Uh, um, uh, thank you, Pat. As I say, uh, I will try to uh, adjust that in my head. Uh, it's uh, something that uh, I've been mispronouncing, I think, for years. Anyway, thank you. Uh, Thomas uh, Byrne supports Helen McEntee on her efforts in Dublin, says somebody else. What the hell is he going to do about Drogheda? There's no law and order in the town at all. Guardia a rare sight on the streets and in estates. Criminals have a free run says our caller. Uh, listener in Navin says, Michael, it's a pity to see Irish rugby team representing our nation but not honouring our national anthem. They must be the only team in the world uh, who are not proud of the Irish national anthem. Ireland's call is a joke and it's been mentioned by commentators as our national anthem before the games. Thank you, Navin Lister. 
uh, Eric Cuthbert uh, on a different sports story saying concerning Ireland's defeat last night hopefully the media won't be bad losers by throwing in doubts about Stephen Kenny's inability if Stephen Kenny can't do it no one can says Eric Peter Inkel says good morning Michael and your listeners are working class people and all people are being squeezed with inflation and taxes on everything USC that's now been bandied around was introduced all those years ago as a temporary measure or at least it should have been a temporary measure and it should be abolished altogether says Peter. Thank you indeed uh, for your text Peter as always. Our text number is 0861800658 text or WhatsApp is on that number phono for 1983 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, civil servants working uh, for local authorities around uh, the country are in dispute with uh, the local government management association. They say that uh, the roles that they have working for the council have evolved somewhat since a decade ago and that 10,000 people who were lost in local government jobs have not been replaced, but their roles have been taken on by those left behind. It means that people are being underpaid as a result because they're doing so much work uh, and uh, this dispute escalates uh, today uh, and it's going to have an impact on the services provided provided specifically that is to local councillors who are trying to represent their constituents. We'll hear from two now in County Louth, Sinn Féin Councillor Kevin Meenan joins us and in County Meath, Independent Councillor Nick Killian is on the line. Good morning to both of you and thank you indeed for joining joining us on the programme this morning. Nick Killian, if I could begin with yourself. Uh, you go to the council, you speak uh, to one of uh, the officials, you make a representation on behalf of somebody hoping uh, that uh, you can affect change, if you like. Uh, but you're not going to have that opportunity from today onwards. There is to be no communication uh, with people working in local authority offices. Well, so we got a letter from Forza last, um, on the 6th of September. Now, first of all, it's very short notice telling us about it. Um, look, we have great respect for the staff that we work with on a, on a daily basis. And there's obviously HR issues there in relation to job description, job development. But that's a matter between the managements. Because I want to make it very clear, as councillors, we have no hand actor part in the hiring or firing of staff. So therefore, uh, you know, I certainly am a bit annoyed that Forza are taking this action out on ourselves. And and really, by taking it out on ourselves, they're affecting the ordinary people uh, of this uh, country or this county that I represent, right. or the area I represent. So mm. from our perspective, um, I don't think Forza had a good choice in choosing politicians. We're an easy target. But at the end of the day, and this is what I called the other day on um for was that at least let us make representations on housing. That's the busiest area that I certainly work with. Um, I don't know about a uh, um, colleague mm. that's on this morning, but we certainly need to be able to keep in contact. And we will be keeping in contact because there's an onus on senior management to provide a service to us as well. And I've made that perfectly clear to our own CEO. And uh, we need to be able to keep that contact going. Um, we appreciate the position that the staff are, are in and have been put in by their union and we're calling on the 
management teams, both the LGMA and CCMA, these are the management body representative uh, bodies, uh, to get down and do whatever has to be done and go to the Work uh, Relations Commission. Mm, well, and there, out. Yeah, those talks broke down uh, without any success some while ago. Uh, Kevin Meenan also on the line. As I say, Kevin, uh, I imagine... Uh, Nick is probably right saying uh, that most of uh, the requests you get from constituents are in relation to housing. Lots of issues, uh, I'm sure. But do you also uh, agree with Nick Killian that Forza is misguided uh, in how it's going about this? No, uh, no, not necessarily. I, I would agree there's a right to strike. Uh, like, uh, for, for myself, I'm a councillor, have been for a while. Uh, I deal with a huge amount of issues every day, multiple issues every day. So multiple times I'm ringing the, the county council and and majority of it is, is, housing, is uh, homelessness or, or whatever. Uh, and, and, and others have to, have to adapt to that. Uh, I would be hoping this comes to... Uh, this doesn't last, doesn't doesn't last long. I've been here before this. I think this happened about ten or twelve or so years ago, and uh, we went through for a short period of time, and uh, and we just consulted with senior management whenever we wanted any of the priority stuff done, uh, and we just guided people in terms of of them putting their own requests and showing them how they go about doing that. Uh, but as I say, I, I, at the moment, for, for myself, it's going to be a huge inconvenience. I know other councillors have expressed the point that they should have maybe looked at alternative measures. But uh, but again, the other thing I'd like to point out as well, for, and I've been in council since 1999, and, I, and I've seen the numbers, uh, well, I, like the huge amount of work that goes on, where we've had a, a higher amount of people in housing, both in Dundalk and Drada, like amalgamated into one. Uh, and there's, I, for example, in Loud, we have... I think four people in the HAP section, which is a very, very busy section. And I think Fingal have something like 10 or 11. And the, well, we, we have the same figures as what you would have mm. in Fingal. So I know that, I know the staff are completely stretched. And I would say it probably has to take something drastic for this to happen for, for them to, to at least try and, in terms of the, the pay evaluation. We're also bringing up the number of council, council employees because ultimately the lack of council employees is affecting my constituents getting out of the hat through or various other things because there's a shortage of staff. And, mm. and this is probably all came to a head. So you'd say it as possibly short-term pain to gain yeah. long-term gain, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. for, for, for the constituents mm-hmm. as well. Mm. Uh, and and, and I, I'll just have to adapt. And I do agree with the right to strike. It's not it's not an option. We, we can't sort of cherry-pick the best option that they that, that they chose to do that will, that will that won't affect me as, as much. But I, say, I respect the right the right to strike. I think there are, it's, it's a bigger issue, uh, and we've all been complaining. It comes off generally or very, very uh, commonly our council meetings the lack of staff, uh, whether it be outdoor staff, clerical staff. Mm. Uh, as I say, and I know for example uh, the homeless section are, and, and HAP are extremely under pressure. Mm. Uh, Nick Killian, uh, that must be the case and uh, I doubt uh, you'd argue that point uh, given uh, that 10,000 staff were lost a decade ago. Yeah, we, we and they were never fully replaced and mm. we still have shortages of staff, particularly I've been always advocating for additional staff for our housing section uh, and indeed right across, the it's not just the housing section, yeah. it's right across the whole local authority system. And we appreciate that, and we know that that has to be fought for. And the job description situation, I know because I see it myself, uh, there are... um you know, staff carrying out duties that are probably should be done by more senior people. Mm. And this is where the, the whole area of um, 
interpreting what the jo- their jobs actually are needs to be reviewed. But yeah. my call today is sorted. Mm. Because it will have an effect, and I appreciate what. But Jeff why will it? Why will it have an effect? I mean, but just if I, can, if I if I can put the point, because I think there's a question uh, about the fairness of uh, the system, and I wonder if uh, the system needs to be changed because undoubtedly the staff will continue to take calls from members of the public. Uh, why do members of the public need councillors to represent them, and are their complaints treated differently? if they call themselves, than they would be if you were there to represent them? No, there are certain situations where we deal with very intricate, very sensitive um, cases. And it needs, you know, we're we're kind of an intermediary. We're mediating in certain situations where, and sometimes the person themselves doesn't have the capability at a given time to look after themselves to do a particular query. And we're there, if you like, in the middle, mediating, um, helping, lobbying, trying to get problems solved. Most people could ring up, a lot of people can ring up the council and um, make their own particular concerns known or whatever Mm. pothole or whatever. They're simple things. But it's the ones that we deal with that are complicated, that take time, where you have to put the effort in and that there's not just one section dealing with it. You could have two sections of the council dealing with it. So there are areas where, yes, of course, and I'd encourage the public now to ring directly rather than, you know, contact ourselves. Uh, If it's urgent, ring the council directly. But I will be going through senior management in certain situations because of the individuals that come to me with difficult situations that have to be represented and urgent representation. Mm. And particularly, Kevin uh, said it there, particularly the whole area of homelessness, where Mm. we have to push at times and and push that little bit extra to make sure that that person is looked after. Mm. And that's what's important to me. It's the people that we represent are very important. Okay, And Kevin, would you agree that that's a necessity, that you're there uh, in order to push on behalf of somebody, as Nick puts it? Uh, I mean, why is there that need uh, for that level of representation to be pushing, to be hammering somebody? I mean, should the council officials not be looking at at this themselves and deciding, uh, well, this is unfair and we need to do something ourselves? What happens in most cases with myself is lots of people come to us, and there's a confidence thing as well, where you're, where it be around form filling or actually just going in, accompany them to a meeting in the council of and you're putting them at ease, and you're helping them maybe frame their points across better than maybe what they can articulate themselves. So, and 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 some people are fair, are, are 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 very competent and send their own emails in or whatever, and some will ask you how you could possibly frame an email so you may give them a hand with that but a lot of the stuff you're doing like my stuff if i head into office today and i will be i will be meeting people helping them with forms various things yeah and most of the time then you end up accompanying them down to the homeless section or the housing section so and, and trying to explain that with them and it just even even to be there with them it is uh it makes them more comfortable as well so as I say, but there's people out there who are well able to, to look after themselves, but there's people out there who, who value the support of a councillor attending okay. them at where to a meeting or help yeah. them fill in a form or etc. Well, I'm sure there's many uh, people listening to us who have testified to that, uh, but there'll be no representation uh, from today, and that is part of uh, the dispute which will go on indefinitely uh, until uh, there is some sort of resolution, I take it. Okay. Well, there is an onus on management here. 
to get to grips with this as well and Minister Darrow O'Brien will have to intervene to make sure that this is brought to an end Okay Nick thank you indeed thanks as well Kevin thanks both of you for joining us on the programme this morning Independent Councillor on Mead County Council Nick Killian Sinn Féin Councillor on Louth County Council Kevin Meenan Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you've been hearing, Fianna Fáil is holding its uh, think-in before the doll resumes next Wednesday. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and columnist with uh, the Meath Chronicle, is in Tipperary with uh, the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Gavin. Thanks indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, maybe you'll tell us uh, about uh, the thinking within Fianna Fáil circles in a moment. Uh, but uh, can we begin uh, at uh, the top of uh, that political party, the Tánaiste and leader Micheál Martin, who you accompanied to the Middle East last week. It it must have been a fascinating journey. Tell us about your experience. Yeah, a really fascinating journey. A a little bit whistle-stop. A a long day's travel on on Monday to get there and a long day's travel on Friday to get back. Uh, Probably not as as long for him because he had the government jet with him, so he was able to make a slightly more direct route. But uh, effectively, uh, one day in Jerusalem, meeting with senior Israeli figures, including uh, for a far longer period than we'd expected, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, we were told he was basically just getting a photo op with him, but he ended up getting a good good sit-down and a good chinwag with, with the Israeli PM. Uh, on Wednesday, then, into the West Bank, into Ramallah, which is effectively the, the capital of, of the West Bank of Palestine, meeting there with President Mahmoud Abbas and, and touring around other facilities that are partly funded by the Irish government. And then on Thursday... Uh, going over to Jordan uh, to meet the Prime Minister and the King of Jordan as well, because not alone is Jordan seen as something of a a possible honest broker in trying to get any long-term solution between Israel and Palestine. Uh, But there's also other things that Ireland and Jordan can talk about, because Jordan is a country which, remarkably, for having a population of only 10.5 million people, 40% 40 of whom are refugees, because there are around 2 million people displaced from Palestine because their homelands are now controlled by Israel. And more recently, because of what's been going on in Syria for the last 12 years and the civil war under Bashar al-Assad, there's now about 1.5 million Syrians living in Jordan as well. So Michal Martin kind of having a discussion around how are we going to stop refugees from having to leave the places that they're coming from in the first place? Okay, it's a very long journey uh, because it's very far away uh, in many ways. uh, But in Israel, at least... They're very aware of Ireland and the Irish and Irish opinion of Israel and they wanted to know why Ireland hates Israel uh, and if Sinn Féin uh, uh, hates Israel more than any other political party in the world for that matter. Yeah, uh, w- one thing which becomes very apparent when you do uh, the occasional uh, overseas visit with a Taoiseach or a Taunashe, like like I'm lucky enough to be able to do in my day job, uh, it becomes very obvious very quickly that Ireland really does like to be liked. Uh, Ireland is one of those countries which, although we have a very kind of secure opinion of ourselves uh, domestically, that we, we kind of hate when anyone else uh, overseas has anything ill to say about us. We do like to be in everyone's good books. And ordinarily, when, when a Taoiseach or a Taunashe is going to a foreign country like this, really what they're trying to hammer home is, oh, look at all the, the common ground we have. Look at all the close relationships. You know, you go to the US or the UK or to any other European capital, and it's all about, oh, look, look at everything we've got in common. Look how we can collaborate further. And the curious thing about going to Israel is that it's really the complete opposite, that, that I think both countries are going and going into meetings knowing that it's, it's not going to be the most cordial of exchanges because mm. Ireland... Don't get me wrong, Ireland does support Israel's right to exist, and sometimes that is kind of overlooked, or sometimes it's forgotten or panned by by some in the Israeli media. Like, Ireland does does support the idea of a two-state solution, and that does mean 
Israel being there as a safe and internationally recognized homeland for the Jewish people, and that's fine. Um, but there is something of a view within Israel that basically if you are in favor of Palestinian statehood, that that kind of means that you are anti-Israel in some way, or it means you endorses some of the ways in which some Palestinians go about their business, which, which isn't acceptable to the rest of the world. And when they start getting into areas of, of almost state-sanctioned terrorism, really, that's kind of where, where things kind of become tricky. But, but it is very, very strange to hear Michal Martin, to see him go abroad and to spend a day going to a region where, yes, sometimes he's going to be lauded, but sometimes he's also going to be told that we're completely on the other side to you. Right, and uh, the Tarnister Michal Martin uh, did go some way to try and explain all of this. Uh, in a speech he gave uh, to the Israeli Council on Foreign Relations in Jerusalem, uh, this was uh, an audience of diplomats, academics and think tankers, uh, I believe, uh, in which he said, Ireland's long-standing principled position on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict can be an ongoing source of friction in our political relationship, but it is simply incorrect to say Ireland's criticism of Israeli policy towards Palestine Palestine is evidence of hostility on the part of the Irish people. Uh, not everybody applauded the Tarnishta. No, uh, not not everybody applauded that because I think that the there were many quarters in the room who basically thought that there was uh, effectively what he needed to have was a full, unequivocal, absolute uh, condemnation of any kind of Palestinian violence uh, against the Israeli people, and it really kind of gives you a little bit of a hint into the Israeli mindset. Now, and I, I don't I don't say this to say. But this is in any way unjustified, because to be fair, um, you know, Israel is one of those societies where everything is peaceful until suddenly everything isn't. And you sort of never know really when, when danger might lurk around the corner for them. Um, but there is a kind of level of, of nationally mandated almost paranoia in the country. Where, like, I'm sorry, paranoia is maybe the wrong word, because paranoia implies that there's no base to it. But there's a kind of a natural uh, and national angst and there's this kind of like latent worry in everyone's minds that, that suddenly... This, this project, this nation that they think that they have waited 2,000 years to have will suddenly be taken from them. And basically, they're, they're, to a certain level, they're kind of petrified that anyone major in the international community would turn around and say, listen, you guys have, have gone over the threshold now. We need to kind of really think about what your place in the world is. And it does kind of really feed into that. But one thing which is very interesting, you mentioned it there in your, your introduction a moment ago, one question that was asked of Michal Martin, and, and to be fair, it was possibly the only time really all week that any domestic politics came into it. Uh, one person in a Q&A session towards the end of that um, that audience with Michal Martin asked, you know, how would the view be any different uh, were Sinn Féin to, to lead power? And, I mean, Sinn Féin's stance on, on the Palestinian stuff, they kind of see real correlation between Ireland's struggle for nationhood and the Palestinian equivalent. Uh, the Palestinian ambassador is always a guest of honour and giving a shout-out from the stage at every single Sinn Féin or Desh. Uh, it, it's hard to cra- uh, fathom that any Irish government led by Sinn Féin would not be looking to immediately try and recognise Palestinian statehood, yeah. irrespective of yeah. uh, how the rest of the EU feels. And Michal Martin's answer, the long and the short of it was, well, lads, maybe better the devil you know than the devil you don't. <laughs> okay, you don't well, want the world to recognise Palestine. You don't want the other guys in power. Yeah. All right, well, uh, Matt Carthy, uh, the Foreign Affairs spokesperson, told us, yes, Sinn Féin will recognise Palestine as a state and would be open to talks with Hamas, for that matter, on Friday's programme. Yeah, Michal Martin yeah. said that before, too. Yeah. Uh, not that Hamas Michael Martin has, you know, openly in opposition, has twice tried to use the stance in the opposition session to bring motions before the door calling on Ireland to recognise Palestine. Uh, the only difference now is that because uh, Finnegal aren't convinced that it's immediately the right thing to do, uh, that the government consensus is that they're going to have to wait for there to be some kind of common ground or some sort of critical mass 
of EU states that were prepared to do likewise. And that, by the way, was ostensibly the real mission of the trip, that, that Ireland, uh, although it's seen as very pro-Palestine, Ireland is, is one of the countries which appears to be still somewhat interested or engaged in what's going on in the Middle East. And, and certainly the view of the officials from the Department of Foreign Affairs that we spoke to is that with everything else that's going on in the world, particularly what's going on in Syria, and, and more recently, of course, what's going on in Ukraine, that a lot of other European capitals have just effectively lost interest, that they're not paying as much attention into what's going on, and that Michal Martin wanted to at least kind of stir the pot a bit and see if he could engender any kind of interest that might kickstart the whole process for the rest of the EU. Now, unfortunately for him, uh, Ireland recognises two or three other countries as being uh, predominantly engaged in this whole thing. Effectively, uh, Sweden, uh, Finland, Belgium and Luxembourg are the only other countries that Ireland believes is really interested in the whole thing. And uh, somewhat ironically, those are the countries that the Israelis also believe are similarly uh, anti-Israeli and pro-Palestinian. So if they are the ones that are supposedly interested and they're all the countries that Israel doesn't like, I don't see much progress of any progress in the short term. Okay, different focus today, obviously, uh, and back on home soil. Thinking for the parliamentary party ahead of uh, the busiest political term uh, of any year and indeed uh, what is uh, the great showcase of uh, the political year, the budget for next year. Uh, there's a, a lot uh, for TDs and senators to mull over today, including that protest outside. Uh, what's the mood like in Tipperary, Gavin? Uh, well, quite quite bacound right now because it's only kicking off at lunchtime, so there isn't really much uh, much sign of any activity around here at, at uh, the Horse and Jockey Hotel in Thurles just at the moment. But one thing I did think was very interesting in the run-up to all of this, um, this, this budget uh, forthcoming, as you said, and it's the main kind of showcase of the political season, and it's a real statement of, of aspirations. This is the first time since the days of Brian Lenehan that Fianna Fáil has held the role of Minister for Finance. Now, that might seem, might not seem too important for many because of the way that uh, finance and public expenditure have been split. But, but it does mean that for the first time since late 2010, uh, Micheál uh, Martin's party and Fianna Fáil are responsible for, for taxation and how taxation goes. And on that note, it was very, very fascinating to see a very well-informed piece on the front of the Business Post yesterday saying that it's going to be an €11 billion Euro budget and that the main hallmark of it is going to be uh, the reduction of the universal social charge, something which was, of course, introduced the last time that Fianna Fáil had the finance brief in the budget. Now, there might be a long-term arc there that Fianna Fáil wants to chip away at this uh, supposedly temporary thing that it only introduced uh, 13 years ago. Um, but I did think it was also curious because we are all looking around the corner wondering when the next general election is going to be. And we all had the, the big political drama earlier this year when three Fine Gael ministers were talking about looking for tax cuts that were worth about a grand a year to the average income earner. Now, it's very telling that uh, that doesn't appear now to be happening, but that when Fianna Fáil are in charge of all this, and just before Michal Martin needs to be able to rally the troops and really show them that Fianna Fáil has a distinct identity, lo and behold, we're now seeing this very well-informed pieces about how Michal Martin is promising the USC will be cut and the rest of the cabinet apparently rallying around to that idea. So mm -hmm. if there was any concern for, for Michal Martin or for Fianna Fáil TDs in general, about trying to differentiate themselves between uh, themselves and Fine Gael and trying to have kind of some point of difference maybe ahead of the next election whenever that comes. Uh, no harm at all that a headline like that appeared just hours before Neil Martin had to write the troops to Tipperary. Indeed. That headline on the USA and uh, the other idea that some pensioners will be earning more than €300 Euro a week if they're also uh, receiving fuel allowance will go down with a, a lot of people. Maybe not as well with Fine Gael as it would with Sinn Féin. Is that part of the thinking, do you think, when Fianna Fáil is looking to the next election? 
Uh, it quite possibly is. I mean, I think Fine Gael really set out its stall when it did that, that op-ed written by three of the Fine Gael junior ministers uh, earlier this year when they were specifically saying, no, the, the one target, the one real, you know, holy grail North Star that they were pursuing in the budget was a tax cut worth a grand for somebody on the average way, full-time wage of, of in the high high 40,000, somewhere in the region of 47 or 48,000 euro a year. That's the average full-time wage in the country. They wanted that person to be a 1,000 euro better off. And that was the one thing that was laid out explicitly. And, and now it seems that, A, it's probably unlikely to happen. By the way, also unlikely to happen, Leo Varadkar's aspiration of a 30% tax rate that, that applies somewhere between the 20 and the 40. I understand the donkey work is done, but it doesn't look like it's actually going to happen in this year's budget, which is also very interesting. Mm. Um, but you do have to, to ultimately go and bear in mind that the big picture of the election, that if, if Fine Gael have said, right, well, the, the average industrial worker and the amount of money they get to take home, if that's what we are looking at, if, if that's, you know, Leo Varanker going back to his aspirations of sorting out people who get up early in the mornings, well, there's, there's plenty of other people who are in slightly ropey straights in society too and if being a falsely a point of difference there then they're, they're every every bit entitled to try and go for those who are uh, reliant on social welfare because they are too ill to work or too vulnerable to work or too old to work or generally incapable of work. Uh, if that is a point of difference then it's one that Michal Martin will happily embrace. Any insight uh, Gavin at this stage into what they might spend €5 billion euro on? It's to be a €6.4 billion euro budget uh, on all of the usual stuff, if you like, but suddenly there's another 5 billion euro on one-off measures. How might they spend that? Uh, You'd probably see a lot of stuff very similar to what we saw last October. Uh, You might well see, first of all, uh, the ongoing uh, suspension of excise duty on fuel. Do bear in mind, you know, we were only talking last week or the week before about the the increase in the price in a a litre of petrol and diesel got up by five or seven cents in the last couple of weeks. It's supposed to go up again at the end of October, but that's going to bring it back up to somewhere within striking distance of two euro a litre. And it was a two euro a litre last year that prompted the government to move in and have an extra, a temporary cut to excise duty in the first place. So one thing you have to remember is that the government will already have priced in the idea of that tax kicking back in again at the end of October. So merely by rolling over that tax cut, that kind of notionally costs money because the government hadn't already pre-committed to doing it. So something like that, no doubt there'll be more energy credits because uh, Michal Martin did say this to me in Jerusalem when I asked about the, the cuts introduced by the likes of SSE, Electricity and, and Electric Ireland in the last couple of days. Um, it might ostensibly weaken the case for the government having electricity credits, but the government is still mindful that the wholesale price is still quite a bit higher than it was two years ago and that the domestic prices are still way higher than they were and that the government isn't going to be looking at recent price cuts as a deliberate excuse simply to, to dodge what they need to do. So you're likely to see more universal credits. Those are in the region of €400 million Euro every time they do them. So if they do two or three of those, that, that's €800 million or, or £1.2 already. And, and suddenly you find that it doesn't actually take very long to spend an awful lot of money. And if you throw in a National Sovereign Wealth Fund or some kind of rainy day fund as well, then you, know, you find it being gobbled up very, very quickly indeed. Okay. Very good. Uh, I'm just thinking of your grandchildren in years to come uh, listening to that anecdote of what Michal Martin said to you in Jerusalem last week. It's an odd turn of phrase, uh, but a good one to have uh, uh, following on from uh, what must have been that fascinating trip back home uh, to domestic issues and uh, the big showcase, as you say, of Budget 24. Gavin, thank you indeed for joining us as always. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News, is also a colleague with the Meath Chronicle.
Now, let's uh, come to some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Sean, thank you for your WhatsApp message, as always. He says, fair play to Thomas Byrne. Uh, He didn't blame the war for the complete mess he and his party have caused. So that means they have zero excuse for the mess. Uh, Sean says uh, the minister was so incompetent that he forgot to spin the war as an excuse and then blame everything uh, for... (laughs) Uh, that or on that as uh, the case may be. Thank you Sean uh, for your message uh, to the programme today. As always um, we'd uh, somebody in touch saying uh, about a a new cash machine uh, that seems uh, to be steeped in secrecy. That's uh, Tony uh, who also says uh, your speaker on child poverty and uh, the wider public should be aware that the so-called free school book scheme was paid for by withdrawing funds from other parts of the education budget, less publicised and certainly not revealed to the public when it was done. Uh, thanks Anthony for that. Uh, not sure specifically what you are talking about uh, but it was something that was promised in the programme for government uh, and uh, the next move now is to move on to free school books at secondary level. I imagine there's few who would argue with the idea of it. Uh, Paddy Duffy in touch with this, he says the real mission of Michal Martin's visit to the Middle East was electioneering for a job in the EU. Hmm. Interesting. Thanks, uh, Paddy, for that. Uh, indeed, um, we'd uh, John in Dundalk in touch with us. He says, "Am I?" gone mad in the head. Did I just hear that pensioners are going to be paid €300 a week? What am I working for? Why are my taxes paying for this? These are people who don't have a job and no travel costs as a result. No mortgage. No dependents. What do they need €300 for? When you take into account that they probably have a private pension and savings on top of that money, why do I have to work to make pensioners wealthy in this country? Thank you indeed. Uh, There were some comments uh, that uh, we kept from Friday's programme because uh, there were so many people in touch with us. Uh, one of those uh, was Brian, who emailed uh, about RTE. Uh, we're going to be hearing a lot about RTE with uh, the resumption of uh, Dahl committees or Oireachtas committees uh, this week. And he says, when I, I think of the RTE board, uh, I think of uh, the expression, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. What an incompetent bunch. An effective board must ask uh, about and know about all key matters. Ironically, the Discovery Channel, where D Forbes came to RTE from, has the slogan, Satisfying Curiosity. The RTE board have been curious, and I hope D recovers to give her version of events to satisfy our curiosity. As Kieran Mullooly said on the programme, Ryan Tuberty should refund the €150,000 he got for services not rendered. Thank you indeed, Brian, for your email to michael at lmfm.ie. Margaret was in touch uh, about pay rises of uh, between 6% and 10% uh, being given to the RTE executive. She said, mind-boggling when the station is looking for a bailout of €55 million. What a slap in the face to licence fee payers when you have uh, a fox watching the hen house. There's only one outcome, the oversight into a lot of bodies in this country is totally non-existent 
everything is reactive when it should be proactive. It's a disgrace how these things are allowed to happen in the first place. Well, thank you indeed uh, for that, uh, Margaret. Uh, Matthew and Rod, apologies uh, for the delay in getting these comments, but when our time runs out, it runs out, as they say. Uh, he was uh, in touch with us uh, about uh, the ongoing situation in Drogheda uh, and the few that we all became far too familiar with. And now that that's died down, what's next? Uh, and is something being done to divert young people away from a life of crime? That's what we were promised. Anyway, uh, Matthew says that Imelda Munster was right. You need to reach out to teenagers. You need to give them something to do. When we were growing up, we had the boys in yellow batter, indoor football, pool darts, rings, cards, table tennis, boxing and lots more. Gardy came into us and they spoke about drinking and drugs and antisocial behaviour. Parents knew where we were. If we don't get back to that sort of thing, we'll just keep losing this fight, says Matthew. Thank you too for that. Uh, somebody uh, wondering about the thugs and why there isn't a curfew on the thugs. Uh, such as those who are giving Navin a bad name day and night now. There's assaults and they're becoming commonplace. And the underage excuse is a free licence for these thugs to carry on. Don't hear any talk of a curfew, uh, Navin listener, but uh, we did have the Minister on the programme last week saying she wants to see more Gardaí in County Meath and in towns like Navin. She says she's aware of the problems and that she's spoken to the Commissioner because it's Andrew Harris's gift as the Commissioner to decide how many Gardaí go to any particular area in the country. Um, we'd uh, another message uh, about Fine Gael, 12 years plus in government, uh, which has uh, done nothing uh, to fulfil the social contract that we were told uh, about. It'll take decades to reverse their uh, record in government. This particular party should be re- renamed the FU I'm All Right Party. <laughs> My God. Uh, the majority of our people can't afford one more day of Fine Gael in government. Everything is just getting worse. Uh, that uh, came to us uh, from Paddy Duffy. Thanks, uh, Paddy, for that. Thanks, too, to Anya, who is in Drogheda, uh, and uh, she's uh, been in, in touch with us about the cost of living, saying uh, they've got to put money back in our pockets. However they go about it, the cost of living is has just gone out of control and it's very hard of us for a lot of us ordinary people to just get from day to day thank you Anya that's our programme for today Maggie McGuire researched Chris Murray was in the control tower I'm Michael Godmulling we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie